0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Critic's new podcast, Black's History Week. The former Prime Ministers, John Major, Tony Blair and Theresa May, have all criticised Boris Johnson's handling of the Internal Market Bill and Withdrawal Agreement. But how common is it for ex-prime ministers to continue to play a prominent part in British politics after they have left Downing Street? And do American presidents mostly find it easier to resist the urge to influence political debate after their White House tenure expires? In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, biographer of Robert Walpole and Pitt the Elder, talks to The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about the ruling passion and which of the past masters have successfully influenced politics after their time in office elapsed.
1: Professor Jeremy Black, I suppose we should begin by distinguishing the difference between prime ministers who retire into private life and those who... ...stay involved in frontline politics, uh, particularly those who then use the upper chamber of Parliament, the House of Lords, uh, as uh, a place to pursue their political ideals. We'll come to some more recent examples in a moment, but I wonder if we might start with the example of the mid-18th century Prime Minister William Pitt the Elder. Uh, I mean, what did he achieve as Prime Minister and um how did he go about trying to influence public life after he ceased to be prime minister
2: well william pitt the elder um essentially was a house of commons man who forced himself um into office he wasn't really welcome to either George II or to uh, the Duke of Newcastle, the key political figure. And having been Secretary of State during one of the two Secretaries of State during the Seven Years' War, that's the war 1756 to 63, in which Britain conquers Canada, becomes the great power, defeats the French, um, really transforms the situation in the Atlantic world. Um, Pitt is a difficult colleague. Um, He... Uh, falls out um, with George III and uh, and indeed with his own ministerial colleagues, um, resigns in a huff in 1761 when he can't force them into war with Spain quickly enough, and then is a difficult character. Now, the point that you, what you're asking about is essentially um, prime ministers, or subsequently presidents, after they lose office and how they then behave themselves. And um, I think we can start off with several points. Demographics is a key one. Most ministers, first ministers, presidents in the past became prime minister or president older and died younger than most of their counterparts today. So literally their period of, as it were, post office uh, politicking or non-politicking was shorter. That's point one. Second of all, Ill health was an issue in the past, as it of course it is in the present. So if you combine people, um, as it were, um, sort of retiring closer to death, they might then spend their last period of of time, uh, ill. I mean, you know, Neville Chamberlain's a good example in 1940 of cancer, for example, um, rather than, I don't think he would have uh, led an opposition to Churchill. i not sure he was still leader of the Conservative Party. I don't think he would have done, but he was also a dying man and, in fact, died later in 1940, and Churchill famously uh, made, paid great tribute to him. Um, so in the 18th century, the variable is both what we're talking about, health. So, for example, Sir Robert Walpole ceases to be Prime Minister in 1742, doesn't die till 1745, but has a pretty appalling health situation in 43-44. So, although he doesn't like the King's First Minister, John Earl Carteret, he is not, you know, as it were, going to throw his weight around from the House of Lords. But the other major difference is this. The first minister is the first minister of the crown. The king is more important. So if the king has, as it were, no longer favour for somebody who was their first minister, then it is very difficult for that individual to play a major role Um as far as many parliamentarians are concerned. Many parliamentarians were uneasy about the idea of opposing the royal will, Um, and that does mean that former first ministers are often in a slightly difficult position from that point of view. Now, that wasn't going to stop William Pitt the Elder. William Pitt the Elder um, is opposed to George III's first minister his favorite if you want to use that term uh, john third isle of butte he regards the peace the peace of paris of 1763 that ends the um seven years war he regards it as a sellout peace and he is extraordinarily difficult in some respects politically but on the other hand ironically Both George III, who's become king in 1760, and as I hope you are going to tell everybody, Graham, they ought to read my new biography shortly out, but anyway, whether they do or not, um, they can just listen. Um, uh, Both George III and William Pitt the Elder actually share, at the very basic level, a political idea. And this political idea is that government ought to be beyond party, that in a sense, they both have this image of the previous generation of politicians of being obsessed by party issues, but being particularly uh, Whigs, and that what the king and what the minister should do is try and be somebody that brings together men of talent. I'm afraid it was a gender system in that period, but men of talent, whatever their political background. And that is why, ironically, uh, Pitt becomes prime minister again in 1766. Now, he doesn't wish to be First Lord of the Treasury, which is just as well, because he's not a financial wizard by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he's frequently in debt. Um, but um, he is effectively the chief minister from 1766. And then and, you know, I mentioned this point about ill health. I mean, his mental health has always been a little precarious, but his physical health as well really Sort of collapses um to a and to a great extent in seventeen sixty seven uh, he has a collapse um that partly it's psychosomatic and he goes into a period of rural seclusion from which he pops out he's you know he's now the Earl of Chatham and decries. Uh, policy over america but again um it's quite interesting here uh pitt takes the view that it is a mistake to fight um the uh, american colonists but he also takes the view that it's a mistake of the american colonists to press for independence so um he has his own distinctive stance right to the uh um right you know um right through and indeed uh on the 7th of april 1778 you know whilst speaking and um and saying how you know he's against the idea of uh, american independence uh, he collapses in the house of lords there's a famous painting of that in the national portrait gallery and he dies a month later well that is the most dramatic um i think you can fairly say ex Prime Minister of the eighteenth century, and I think, in terms of it, well the, the drama of his collapse in the in the House of Lords, I think it's the most dramatic of any former uh, prime minister um you know uh, very few other people have taken their integrity to the extent of dying for their opinions all oh, that's horrible, but you know what i mean graham uh the um so in the nineteenth century um you've got a different situation because you've got the development of a much more um, sort of formulated um, uh, party politics, which means inevitably that if the other side is in, uh, people such as uh, Gladstone um, are in effect leaders of the opposition. So that's a very different status in which a form of former Prime Minister, is allowed to have that permi- position in order to decry um, the politics of the current administration. Now, the issue that tends to cause most interest, might be a phrase to use, um, is when you have somebody who is decrying the current policies and leadership of a political party which they had been the prime minister and leader of and doing so in public it's quite i wouldn't say commonplace but it was you know it happened that people would always do that sort of thing in private uh right back in fact to the um to the old core whigs of the early 18th century but doing it in public i think is an interesting uh perspective and of course that becomes more common in recent decades because you've got more former prime ministers who are younger and who are still active they've not um and uh party politics gives them the opportunity w- if they so wish to take that role now so that a classic example i suppose was tony blair tony blair ceased to be Prime Minister and made his opinions on Labour policy in the mid to late two teens very clear. Um, he was, in effect, um, uh, you know, a, a, a one of the more vocal critics of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and uh, Tony Blair would no doubt tell you that um, Mr. Corbyn had um, sort of, distorted and thrown away a great tradition and Corbyn would no doubt say the same thing about Tony Blair Um, but that was certainly a very different stance shall we say, to what you might have expected in the age of, um, shall we say, um, if you're looking at former Labour leaders, I mean, obviously, Wilson during the Callaghan years, Wilson was already unwell. Uh, but if you're looking at Callaghan during the early 80s, I mean, Callaghan was not a fan of um, uh, of uh, uh, Michael Foote but nevertheless his attitude was public attitude was rather different to that of of Tony Blair but on the other hand you might say that uh, what um uh Jeremy Corbyn did was pretty spectacularly to change the nature of the um of the um of the Labour Party I'll seek to change the nature of the Labour Party again another big difference is whether the person chooses to stay in parliament um both Blair and David Cameron uh, left Parliament pretty quickly, uh, but whilst remaining healthy and willing to make statements and publish memoirs which, in effect, were, you know, self-justifications. Whereas, again, going back to Callaghan, uh, Callaghan ceased to be Prime Minister in 1979. He's leader of the opposition to 1980, and he's then, uh, far, you know, he remains... A uh, member of parliament till 1987 and he's leader of the house father of the house from 83 to 87 so he is still um playing a role in politics and in this scene around the place goes to meetings of the parliamentary party um whereas obviously shall we say some um, some prime ministers have never been of both political parties have never or party leaders have never been terribly well grounded in the parliamentary party and therefore um, and have had very little willingness to um, to take that role in once uh, they once they've, once they've uh, given up the party leadership.
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, Jim Callaghan is, is a is a. Fascinating example, who's someone who stayed involved in the political process, but um, no longer took a frontline role, I think it's fair to say. And one might say somebody to Gordon Brown, who remained an MP for five years after he ceased to be prime minister. Um, I mean, something interesting with Gordon Brown and also with Tony Blair, which is different from previous generations, is the availability of international positions to take up. Uh, Gordon Brown was certainly interested in the role of becoming MD of the International Monetary Fund. Um, David Cameron's uh, government didn't really back him for it and it ended up going to Christine Lagarde. Tony Blair has had any number of um, international uh, opportunities, not least those he's created for himself: Tony Blair Associates, Tony Blair Institute, Tony Blair Africa Governance Initiative. I could go on, um, and this is very different. I mean, politicians of, of prime ministers, former prime ministers of previous generations, didn't seem to quite maximise that global stage. Uh, at any rate, before before Margaret Thatcher. Well,
2: I think that's true, but um, the, the the range of international institutions created after World War Two was not really there uh, prior to that. And in a sense, I mean, there were international opportunities within the empire, but they were not ones that usually went to a former prime minister. So, for example, um, you know, you could be a governor general somewhere or other, but that was not the sort of thing that a prime minister um, uh, would seek to to do I mean the other thing there is a big difference between people in the House of Commons and people in the House of Lords because members of the House of Lords don 't really necessarily in the past i mean you know Rosebery is a good example he 's prime Minister in uh, eighteen ninety four to ninety five that's, and he was obviously, as you know, an extremely wealthy man. Um, that is his last uh, major significant role. He doesn't die till 1929, um, and actually, he goes on. Um, you know, he goes on playing a, you know, a bit of a role in the uh, um, in 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 with the Liberal Party in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, And there is talk of him sort of trying to uh, be a political leader in, you know, 1902, for example. But, you know, he's still going on thereafter and he he really, he doesn't have a stroke, uh, which really does leave him paralysed till 1918. Um, And it's very interesting that he is not a figure that is brought out of the woodwork to play a role in World War One, his son uh, is killed in the war in 1917. But you know he's not brought out in say 1914, um, 15, or 16 as somebody, a former prime minister, to play a role. Rather like, for example, you might think Arthur Balfour played roles in you know cabinet level in uh, World War One. And if you're thinking of uh, Arthur Balfour as a good example of an in- individual who is able to go from being prime minister, not very successfully, I think one can fairly say, to actually being a cabinet minister who, you know, plays roles which uh, he might, you might take the view that he's better suited to. I mean, people may have different views, but he's First Lord of the Admiralty from 1915 to 16. He's Foreign Secretary from 1916 to 1919. He's Lord President of the Council from 1919 to 22 and 25 to 29. I mean, that's quite a lot for a former prime minister. I mean, if you're looking at other examples, Alec Douglas Hume, of course, is um, Foreign Secretary under Edward Heath. Uh, Heath allegedly... Uh, wanted a cabinet office under Margaret Thatcher, um, and she wasn't having that. And, I mean, he then famously sulked. I remember, actually, very funny, I mean, you know, I I remember um, going to a Conservative Party gathering in Newcastle. I used to live in Newcastle, and Mr. Heath came to address us and he was you know sort of pretty unpleasant company at dinner and pretty un- to everybody doesn't matter what their what their politics were and pretty unpleasant thereafter and he then gave a totally boring speech but what had happened and i was sitting close enough to hear that uh, is he Said to the um, the there was somebody there from the BBC with the camera crew. He said, "I will turn my head, and then you should start filming." And he took, uh, and so he goes rabbiting on about nothing in particular in the sort of ponderous fashion. In fact, rabbiting is the wrong word. It's very ponderous, more like a sloth in you know in treacle. And then at one moment he decides he wants to make his attack on Mrs. Thatcher. So he turns, nods, he gives his two minutes of bile against Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, which dutifully appears that night on the news, and then he resumes his role as the sloth. uh, But no, he was not a... um, uh, He wasn't helpful, and I think one can take this a stage further. Given that there were a group of Conservative uh, cabinet ministers whom felt clearly unhappy with Mrs Thatcher, I don't think that uh, Edward Heath's position helped them.
1: Yes, and I I think um, whatever one's views of Thatcher and Heath, the the temperament of Edward Heath would simply not have been suited to returning into um, any subsequent prime minister's cabinet. It's interesting, um, the examples you give of Arthur Balfour, and Alec Douglas Hume, I mean, the, what they have in common is neither of them were particularly successful prime ministers. And I wonder if that, in a way, made it easier for them to then have subsequent roles in the cabinet of others, in that they, they weren't sitting on such extraordinary success that their, you know, their reputation preceded them and would have made it difficult for their successor.
2: Yeah, but it's also their personalities. I once had to judge some debating competition at the Oxford Union, and uh, there were three judges: myself, some some MP, and Alec Douglas-Hume, who, you know, former Prime Minister. He was the calmest, most genteel, politest of men. He was. <laughs> he did tell me he was off going shooting next day near Lockerbie, and uh, and uh, and um, and uh, sort of, you know, and it was very funny because I obviously hadn't really got much of an idea of what he was talking about in the ins and outs of the shooting but he was a really nice man, extraordinarily nice to the Students And very pleasant to the other judges. I think he was just a very decent fellow. Uh, Balfour was a bit more fey. uh, But I think also, I mean, you know, it was a he'd lost general elections. He knew he was not um, the man that was going to lead the country in war. He didn't have that kind of illusion. He's not like David Lloyd George in 1940, who has this fantasy of himself as prime minister. And Balfour was very happy to be um, a you know a cabinet minister and I've read some of his correspondence I did a book on World War 1 and I've read some of his correspondence as a cabinet minister so, you know some of the correspondence that's handwritten that he writes himself uh, and it's and it's uh, you know he's sensible and interested, interesting, holding down you know uh, clear roles, thinking about the strategic problem uh, you know as first lord of the admiralty, thinking about the problems posed by the western front in a very impressive figure. Now Lloyd George is very interesting. There's a piece by Tony Lentin. He did a collection of essays in which the longest essay is in Lloyd, on Lloyd George and Lloyd George Interests in 1940. And and it has, you know, the book has a dramatic photo of, you know, the occasion when Lloyd George went to Birch's Garden to meet Hitler. And um, Lloyd George in 1940, of course, thinks that he is the person i mean Lenten goes into this in some considerable detail um he thinks that he is the person that ought to be the man that deals with hitler um he thinks that um that uh, churchill is a sort of dangerous radical and that he himself had done better than churchill etc 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 um and he actually sort of takes the view that Patin, um, who he knew, of course, was doing what was necessary for France and that he, Lloyd George, could get a better deal for Britain, but that it was also necessary um, to um, to deal with, with Hitler. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that was probably the most unhelpful intervention of a former Prime Minister in British history, you may have different views, but I think that was probably the most unhelpful, and the only good thing was that Lloyd George, who tends to be eulogised by far too many historians who write about him, that Lloyd George was sufficiently marginal a character, that beyond his own hubris, uh, not very many people were interested in what he had to say in 1940. But that was what the role he thought and of course what's interesting is that Hitler had found time, now Hitler met all sorts of uh, you know uh weird and wonderful people um but hitler had found time to meet lloyd george at birch's garden and of course for hitler lloyd george was the sort of the war leader that had defeated germany in 1918 and lloyd george sort of traded on that to say that hitler would respect him i don't think hitler respected anybody but you know that that was the the attitude he he took so that's interesting um I, You know, if one's looking back, you know, we've jumped all over the place. If we're looking back at some of the other uh, figures, I mean, I mentioned death. I mean, some of the greatest prime ministers went on till they either died or became very unwell. One's thinking, for example, of Lord Liverpool, who's prime minister from 1812 to 1827, and makes that very difficult transition, which is so hard, from being a wartime prime minister to a peacetime prime minister, and you know, becomes almost a part of the British constitution. Um, and you know, Liverpool goes on till he has a stroke. I mean, um, I think he uh, would probably he has a strong. Again, I've read some of his correspondence. He has a strong sense. Of public duty i don 't think that if Liverpool had been uh, an ex prime minister, he would have made too much of a trouble um, for his um, for his successors in the case of Wellington, of course uh, he's prime minister from twenty eight sorry eighteen twenty eight to thirty and then briefly in thirty four He then goes on he 's foreign secretary thirty four to thirty five and minister without portfolio under the Peel administration from 41 to 46. But, you know, others may disagree. But as far as I'm concerned, I would argue that Wellington in that period um, is somebody who um, is, you know, he's got a sense of public duty, um, he's led the Conservatives, or the Tories, if you like, in the House of lords um it, he he in a sense it's um is very doesn 't think of himself as somebody that should be prime minister he sees himself as a steadying influence and I think that 's a reasonable assessment of him i I think he's actually a pretty good uh former prime minister, and obviously he goes on having a role in public life until he dies um the um some other people i mean if you're thinking of of melbourne he's prime minister in 34 and then uh 35 to 41 he doesn't die till 48 so he's there during uh the peel years but i think it's fair to say that by that stage um he's not somebody who um is interested in the uh in really pushing himself and then he goes on and has a stroke um and you know um after he's had a stroke um he sort of you know he writes to the queen explains what's happened and doesn't does quite understandably doesn't play a role but had he not had a stroke i don't think he would have been a tremendously uh, difficult figure. So partly it's a question of the, the the nature of the personality of 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 these people. Um, but again, you know, um, you, you know, others may have different points of view. There are some very good biographies out there on uh, on uh, on some of these individuals, and uh, they're well worth. Uh, Um, having, uh, you know, people having a thought about them.
1: Well, from heads of government to heads of state and from one side of the Atlantic to another. Is the role of the former president, the president of the United States, have those who've held that office um, behaved in different ways to prime ministers, or is it the same in the sense that it depends entirely on the personality and their, their health and lifespan after they've been in the White House?
2: Well, again, you're right on those things. The other thing is that the party structure is different in the United States. So um a former president is not a head of a political party in the way that can be the case in Britain um and as a head of a political party in Britain and either sitting in the commons or the lords is playing an active I mean diurnal daily role in politics so um in a sense there is you know once you cease to be president um you're in a very different position now um some presidents have played a prominent role or have wanted to play a prominent role you can think of Teddy Roosevelt in um beginning of World War 1 wanting America to come in on the British side uh being very uneasy about the the thrust of um American politics you can think of other pot presidents who've had views on foreign policy and expressed them ranging from Hoover um to um to Carter of course um who you know was sort of quite an active negotiator, including in Korea, um in his uh, in his retirement. Some other presidents though have become president of to relatively advanced age and in their retirement have chosen to um as it were be ill, do little, enjoy themselves, play golf, whatever, um and um you know, some of the presidents of the later nineteenth century were not people who in their later life some of them not even when they were president um, would you describe themselves as playing a, a major and distinguished role, I mean if you loop back to the founding fathers who became presidents as you know and they've made a music, I haven't uh, Um, I wouldn't regard it as a source of um, um, I I, I wouldn't cite it as a source for politics. But, you know, they've made a a musical about this dissension, but the dissension between the Federalists and the so-called Democratic uh, Republicans and particular between Alexander Hamilton on the one hand and Thomas Jefferson on the other uh, is a factor. And I think it's fair to say um, that there is a level of ins- potential instability in the United States in the uh, late 1790s, early 1800s, uh, in which the attitudes of both sitting presidents and ex-presidents are quite, and, and would be president, quite important. In fact, it's quite interesting. I notice at the present moment, you know how present-minded people are, They're all saying America's never been so divided as it is at the moment. Well, of course, that's just hogwash. And if you can think back, I mean, obviously, we're not talking just about slavery in the Civil War. But if you think about the uh, presidential election, which um, uh, produces uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, there's a lot of um, sort of militia sort of... um, Sabre rattling and talk about fraudulent election, blah blah blah, and then that winds on towards during the War of 1812, the uh, some of the Federalist states refuse to allow the state militia to cross state lines to fight the evil Brits, and of course at the Hartford Convention, some of them toy with the idea of, of seceding from the Union. So, so you've got all sorts of uh, interesting characters. And although this chap is not a president, Aaron Burr, as a former vice president, um, is involved in discussions with uh, the British about um, uh, in the mid-1800s. I mean, I've discussed that in my book, um, Shaping of America. Um, You know, the documents are very clear in the Foreign Office papers about um, what you, what you or I would call treasonable discussions, let's just put it like that, um, about certainly the policy. He's interested, as is Wilkinson, the relevant military commander in that part of the world, in the idea that Louisiana might be the kernel of a new independent American state, which, what a surprise, is going to be run by them. <laughs> and and um you know i mean there's a famous trial and all the rest of it so former candi former characters can behave in very interesting ways and then of course you know we can take this further if you like by um looking at um other states and you can see that it is perfectly uh, commonplace, I wouldn't like it to say it's normal, but perfectly commonplace for people that have held uh, supreme office either as a um a equivalent of a president or the equivalent of a prime minister um to um sort of feel that their successors are so behaving so badly that something needs to be done a man of destiny needs to come forward and what a surprise they're the man of destiny and of course another little interesting subset it's a very small subset of people that um, abdicated let's say uh, victor amadeus ii of savoy piedmont very successful king long lasting king he abdicates in 1730 in favor of his son carlo emmanuel iii and then um, starts intriguing against him, and whereupon he gets um, arrested and you know later uh, Robert Browning writes an eminently forgettable play about the episode um so there are all sorts of uh, of people who think that the, those who succeed them are failing in their duty, and something needs to be done about it. The principal um, constraint on it in my view is when you have An effective party system in which party representatives are operating not in terms of some faction in which their votes are almost as if owned or at least part of some fealty system. And that helps us destabilize the politics of japan for many years you know people who had been uh, prime minister would stand down but they'd still be in control of their faction and they would then destabilize their successor but if you have an idea that your prime uh, obligation if you are a member of parliament or the, uh, the chamber or the Reichstag or whatever, or the Diet in Japan or Congress, is once you have chosen your leader or your leader has been chosen by the members, whatever system is followed, then therefore you owe them your support, uh, as long as they enjoy uh, the confidence of the parliamentary party, um, then that actually helps to restrain former major figures who might see themselves as kings over the water.
1: (laughs) And and we have an an example rather differently in in Singapore where Lee Kuan Yew, um, after after he ceases to be prime minister, he then beca- there's this role created from the, the minister mentor, so he's still around behind the scenes with huge authority and power. Not, not least when his uh, son becomes prime minister. But uh, well, these are
2: patriarchal systems, and one of the other interesting questions to consider is the difference if you have women as opposed to men. And there you need to look at figures like Mrs. Gandhi, for example, and to consider what she would have, obviously she was assassinated, but what she might have done had she not been assassinated because Congress had become a kind of family fiefdom, which, you know, Uh, I mean, is it it, what did that operate any differently? You've had Sonia Gandhi since did that operate any differently if there were female heads or male heads, you know, you you can have different views on that I I myself don't think there's any particular difference in terms of running a patronage system between women and men. Um, But obviously, some other people might disagree with that.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just to tie up and return to the United States for a moment, I mean, one one thinks of Jimmy Carter, who's had his uh, foundation trying to uh, foster peace in various parts of the world. But I'm, I'm struggling to think of former presidents who have really achieved extraordinarily impressive things after they ceased to be president is that the case or or can you uh, improve my memory
2: Hmm. i think that's a um a interesting let me just have a think about this well i wouldn't say i mean in some cases they were unwell i mean i think you know reagan obviously johnson obviously um and it's it's not easy if you only live two, three years, because you've got to get over what's your sense of loss maybe, you've got to find a new role, and then you're dying. So that doesn't really leave you much of a chance. Um, And obviously you've had other people who've become very unwell in office, Wilson, for example... Or in five, no, it's four cases, been assassinated. So that rather removes you and other people. One of the Harrisons, you know, died in office. So you know, you've not got all that many. I mean, I'm not sure how big a a, a set sample you want. I mean, I mean, Clinton tried to be a uh, a figure after he ceased to be. Uh, president, tried to be somebody of influence. I think he was a bit more of a party figure than Tony Blair. I don't think Clinton matched up to Carter in moral seriousness. I don't think most people would uh, disagree with that one. Um, George H.W. Bush, uh, a man of considerable talent, enormous experience. I mean, you could say it's disappointing he didn't do more in uh, retirement because he did have the you know, he was very well respected. Um, But, um, again, I think for the Americans the difficulty is this, that if you are an American figure on the international stage, you lose a lot of your domestic constituency. The Americans are ambivalent, I think it's fair to say, about international uh, bodies and organizations. Um, And within the United States, it's there are only very limited roles that ex-presidents can play unless they wish to be seen as highly partisan.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, we, we must leave it there, but Professor Jeremy Black, as ever, thank you very much for putting things in perspective. My
2: pleasure.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.